Hello and welcome to another episode of What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Recorded in the radio studios of Chorus Entertainment, Derek and I are joined by broadcasting legend Mike Stubbs, a proud member of the Global News Radio Network and the voice of the London Knights. Today we'll be talking about Mike's incredible career, the radio industry, and news information in the age of social media. We have a jam-packed show for you today, so sit back and enjoy. Mike, thanks so much for joining us, man. It's, it's been a long time coming. I've really looked forward to being able to talk to you on our show. I've learned so much about you over the years from listening to you on the radio and listening to you do the Knights games. I, I got to ask you before we kick off here and talk about things that you find confusing. How did you get into this business? How did you <laughs> get into radio on the one hand from a, a broadcasting perspective in the studio, but also a radio perspective in terms of like being in the hockey arena? If you want to know the truth, I got into radio by complaining. That was about it. I was coming home from a job where I pumped gas as a 15-year-old, and it was at a gas station that no one ever visited because it was around a corner, and anybody who wanted to get gas on this highway had already purchased it from the station that was around the corner. And so I came home and was complaining about it, and I had a mom who said, stop complaining. You wanted to get into broadcasting. Why don't you call a radio station? So I did. They gave me an interview. They gave me a job. And at the age of 15, I was operating religious programming. And as far as hockey goes, I just, I've always, I've always wanted to do play-by-play. The best answer I can give to that is I was five years old and we were driving home in a vicious snowstorm from Tilsonburg, where my parents' family all lived, to the other side of Ottawa, where we lived, in a place called Hawkesbury. And one of the gifts that I'd been given amongst all kinds of generous Star Wars stuff and all kinds of things was an Opeechee hockey card poster from when Opeechee used to make hockey cards in London, Ontario. I had an aunt who lived here in London and she bought this poster and it was the 1978-79 season or 77-70, must've been 77-78. And I couldn't wait to get home and cut that thing into pieces. All I could think about, and I can still remember the feeling, was cutting out those cards so that I could go to the kitchen table and play hockey with them and call a game. And I was five, and I don't know where that came from, but from there, I just pursued any avenue I could that would get me into a rink calling a game, and I'm lucky enough to do that to this day. So how how long were you doing religious programming before you could actually start doing sports? Uh, Oh, sports never even came. Um, I did religious programming 6 to 11 on Sunday nights for about six months and then did some summer relief. I was never allowed to talk on the air and did some summer relief shifts in the evening where basically your job was to queue up things that looked like film strips. And they were either religious programming or other shows that they would have recorded. And every half hour, I would put what looked like an eight track cassette into a machine 
wait for the reel-to-reel tape to end, hit a button that went C-J-E-T, I don't even think that station exists anymore, (laughs) and then I would hit the next reel-to-reel machine, and then I would sit there for a half hour. That was my job. Playing with your Opeachy cards. Playing with all the way, playing with the Opeachy cards. And from there, I ended up being allowed on the air at some point. I was about 16 and a half. And I can remember trying to sound a whole lot older. My mom still has the cassette. And I, I was on this, you know, trying to make my voice lower than it actually was. And from there, I got an overnight gig at the same station doing country music. That was a blast. Mm. Working midnight to six in the morning throughout the summer. And you'd just be, some days you'd be somebody's jukebox where they would just call in. We're having a party. It'd be like a Tuesday. And you'd think, how are you having a party on a Tuesday? But yeah, we got a lot of people over. Uh, can you play this one? And you'd play it because it didn't matter. There were no regulations for hits or Canadian content or anything. You just played songs. And I have a lot of letters from women uh, who wrote in letters thinking I was different than a, I think I was 17 or 18 at that point, different than a 17 or 18 year old (laughs) high school kid. And uh, when they found out, they stopped writing letters. And I never took them up on any of the offers contained in those letters. (laughs) I want that to go on the record right now. Put that on the record. So did you get any formal training? Uh, yeah, you know what? I got training within the radio station Mm. and the rest of it was just kind of learn as you go. And they were, they were very good about training staff and did voice checks for about a year and a half with a program director. And he was as busy as program directors are at radio stations now. And he took the time to let me go into a room and read a story or read a weather. And then he'd come back and he'd critique it and he'd say, don't do this. I was living in the Ottawa Valley. So I had a Valley accent. So get in the car, go downtown. I talked like that. I had to get rid of that. Can we hear more of that in the night's broadcast? I don't know. I try and I'm, I'm worried that I would fall right back into it. So I try and keep that out. It sounds like you've been uh, in this industry for quite some time. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how the industry has evolved over the past uh, 10, 15 years? So many things have changed, and yet so many things have stayed exactly the same. The board that we're sitting in front of now here in a studio at Chorus Radio London, I hope I'm not giving away too much, am I? No, we love to shut up. I, I suspect okay. that we might not have the ability to make your voice lower, but Derek's really good <laughs> at fixing that, so we can do that later. Okay. Well, um, this board would have been exactly the same as any other board when I first broke into the industry. It's exactly the same. And so that hasn't changed. The messaging really hasn't changed. You're here to provide local news for the most part, and that's always a big key. Local news, local information. You're here to be personalities. You're here to be friends to people. It's amazing the relationships you can create and the relationships you build with people you've never met Mm. and people you might not ever meet. But you have these relationships. If you do even a music show or a call-in talk show, you will talk with people on a regular basis. There are a lot of people who are willing to call up and talk about just about every topic that you are discussing. And so you get to know them. You may never meet them. It's a strange thing. But you always have a great connection with them. The other part that's really changed in our business, and I think maybe the biggest challenge that exists is how information is consumed. And I think a lot of the challenge that exists today in all media is the fact that everything is the same now. 
A newspaper reporter is shooting video. A TV reporter is, you know, writing stories that look like newspaper stories. Radio's doing both video and the newspaper type stories. So everything has become very streamlined. And it's a matter of trying to figure out how people are consuming information. And that's changed. It used to be you turned on a microphone, you told people what was happening. Then you had to get a website. Then you had to get a Facebook page. Then you had to have a Twitter feed. Now you need an Instagram account for all of the pictures. Some stations have gone looking for younger demographics with Snap stories and things like that that you wake up to in the morning on Snapchat. So all of that has changed. And the thing is, none of them ever seem to disappear. So you still deliver over the radio. You still have a website. You still have Twitter and Facebook. And now you've been adding in other things. And yet it all seems to be giving the same information. It's just the way that we're consuming it. And it's about trying to stay ahead of how you're consuming it and finding the people that can do it not just one way, but now six ways, seven ways. So do you find that the that new broadcasters and people just getting started in radio now just have to do that much more? We've seen a reduction in employees in the industry, but that's been happening since I was that 16-year-old kid. Mm. I can remember our newsroom had 14 people in it in a little town. This was the town of Smith Falls, where I was doing all of those jobs as a 16 and 17 and 18-year-old. And the newsroom had 14 people, and it would have been late 80s, and all 14 people got called into an office. Two of them came out with jobs. And so changes in the industry or reductions or restructurings or anything, it's just like any industry. They've been happening for a while, but we still continue on and you still do have people coming into the industry. We've got people graduating from Fanshawe College, from Western's journalism program, from all other colleges and programs across the country. They're finding jobs. Mm. So it's not that jobs are disappearing, but now it's almost very useful to bring in young people because they already know how to do all of they those things Snapchat. and more. <laughs> so it's key. It's been really interesting talk, talking to you about some of the changes that have happened in the last 10 to 15 years. Mm. And while I understand where you're coming from, Mike, about the number of jobs being available for young people, I still recognize having grown up in the city, the great city of London, Ontario, Canada, that the radio market to some is sort of collapsing. One of the competitors down the road from here has been firing people left, right, and center. I wonder if any of that has to do with too much information out there. One of the things that you identified earlier as being challenging was trying to figure out where the future of this stuff is going. Do you think there's any correlation between the parts of the radio industry that other employers are shutting down because they just simply can't handle the information, or is this like a, a side story? Is this a different kind of politics? Where does your mind take you on this? Well, I think that the information is always going to be needed. And I think even to a greater extent, we're in an information age right now. When we look back in a million years, we will call this period in time, I believe, the information age. And so I think you'll always need people to do that. You know, how businesses are, are carried out depends on how they want to do it. But everybody's a reporter now. Anybody with a phone is a reporter. 
you name any story, what are we turning to now? We're not necessarily turning initially to the news reports. You might actually have video that somebody shot that they've put up on Twitter or they've put up on Instagram or they've just made available on their Facebook page. And so that becomes an element to it. You need the professional storytellers. And anymore, I think the role of anyone in the media is changing to that, where you can't necessarily just be called a reporter anymore because everybody's a reporter. You've got a phone, you've got a camera, and you've got the ability to report. And now it comes down to how you tell the story, how you do it from a professional manner, the ability to write, the ability to get things done quickly. Uh, The ability to shoot professional video sometimes will help you. The ability to explore topics. So I think that's maybe where the shift is going. But I don't believe that it's going anywhere. I don't think it's disappearing. I mean, you guys are essentially doing what people in radio have done forever. It just provides more of it. And that's, that's another part of the challenge in that the landscape is not broad in broadcasting anymore. It's narrow. So... You are able to provide somebody who has been fascinated by banana growing weekly updates on banana growing. And if they want to find out more about it, they can because that's out there. And so that in itself is maybe a challenge where I think we will see. And this this is just my own opinion. This is just me spitballing, but I like to do it about my industry. I think what we'll see is almost more of a return to what radio used to be, which is almost like an aggregator. So online, you get those aggregators that pull all these stories together, and they give you what you need to know locally, some interesting facts, all of those things. They do it in an entertaining manner, and there's your program. And I really think that's what radio has to be, where if you want that narrow scope, if you're a big fan of whatever, the Toronto Maple Leafs, you can find all kinds of Leafs-specific stuff. If you want to make sure that you have a snapshot of what's going on in your city, well, then you visit that website of that radio station or news provider, or you do tune in and listen. So that's the kind of thing that I think we're going to see more of. And you you mentioned that you you believe that it's now sort of the information age, and you mentioned that now in in radio you sort of view the the role or your role as a as an aggregator so when we talk a common theme on this podcast has been how do we make sense of knowledge how do we make sense of expertise if you're aggregating all of these uh, knowledge claims or truth claims what are some of the challenges especially when you start thinking of fake news and uh, the trump and all of these sorts of things does that affect your role um as someone who is aggregating uh, these these knowledges and these truths? It does. Attribution is key. Mm. Attribution is so key. And sometimes it is so taken for granted. Who said this? You've got to make sure that you let people know who said this. So this is not necessarily mine or ours or this message is not coming from the box that you're listening to it from. This comes from this individual. And this is how they've said it. And here's some backup. We've been able to call them. And that's maybe the other part of things. You in the media are able to build up a lot of trust with a lot of individuals. And that word is so key in what we do. And, you know, people always say, well, I want the truth of the story and I want it. And that's what you should be able to bring me. 
there are complications with that in that in order to get a story, you've got to be willing to have somebody who's going to tell it to you. And that truth sometimes has to be a two-way street. What are they getting out of it? And I'm not saying that's creating fake news because it isn't. But you have to be a trustworthy individual that they're willing to tell sometimes pretty sensitive details to so that they can be told elsewhere. And so you have to be able to contact individuals and say, you know, you're saying this. Okay, say it to me now. I'm going to record it and then we're going to make use of that and we're going to discuss it or we're just going to broadcast it. But that's maybe a key. Attribution is big. And how do you typically sort of vet new sources? This is something I've always been interested in. I wonder if it's like people that he works with. Like on the other side of the board or something like that? Is that right? Well, sometimes it comes down to everybody. It mm-hmm. comes down to everybody's got to vet things. As far as information goes, if a story comes in, and this is one of the hardest things to teach to new journalism students, mm-hmm. because let's say that someone has sent us a message on Facebook and it says, there's a fire at 853 Fanshawe Park Road. You can't take that. And turn on a microphone and say, there's a fire at 853 Fanshawe Park Road, because there might not be. You can either drive down there to see, yes, there is one. You can call the fire department to say, hey, do you know anything about this? And they may tell you. But until you have that certainty, you can't present that story because it's so easy to get things wrong. Absolutely fascinating. I'm wondering, uh, throughout your coverage today on the radio, if you came across that piece about a, I don't know if it was a small town out in the West Coast, it may have been Calgary even, but there was a fake alarm that went off <laughs> telling the residents inside of what Calgary, I think it was, that there was a, a, an incoming nuclear attack. Like what, Hawaii. Eight, eight missiles or something like this happened was, in Hawaii was, too. Yeah, it was Hawaii, right? I thought it was Alberta. Hawaii, I saw the Hawaii one. I haven't yeah. seen the Alberta one. Oh. Maybe we'll my maybe that. my own mother is feeding me misinformation <laughs> because that's what she told me this news. morning. <laughs> well, I mean, it is possible, but again, that's the kind of thing that you can't just say, uh-oh, there's incoming missiles in Calgary. Mm. You must take a look at that because you create mass hysteria so easily because you do have that power and you've got that responsibility. When you turn on the microphone and when you push the volume meter up, you have the ability to say something that's going to be taken at face value. You can go back to Orson Welles as really the first famous proof of the power that that has. Mm-hmm. When he did War of the Worlds, that hysteria occurred. And so you have to realize when I go on, when I say things, I got to be sure. You know, whether or not this thing happens in Hawaii or Calgary or Timbuktu, the thing that I find uh, really interesting about it in the context of our conversation is the fact that it happens over an official alarm system, an official warning system. This isn't just fake news that we pick up on Facebook. It's not just because Zuckerberg's algorithms are, you know, very undisciplined and kind of reckless, as we've talked about in the past before. But what, what happens when, when you as a broadcaster, as an ag- aggregator, come across these sort of stories? What are the things that come to your mind when you see from official channels things that you know are just plainly not true? Who do we talk to? That's the first question you ask when you see a story. Who do we talk to? So, in other words, who do we talk to to verify that this is true? Who do we talk to to get up close to it? So, let's take that example. Let's say that there is a nuclear threat 
on London, Ontario. So the minute you see that, you're going to call police. You're going to have a number of hands working on this. This will be this will be a stop what you're doing. This is big. Everybody doesn't matter if you're writing a story that is going to appear next week. You're doing a feature on a pet fair. Doesn't drop everything. Let's figure this out. You're going to call the police. You're going to call City Hall. Everybody's going to call contacts that they have within City Hall. So this is not the hey, I'm going to call the main switchboard. This is going to be we have the cell phone numbers of all kinds of people in the city. It's time to start texting them and calling them to say what's going on here. So that's one of the other things that will allow the media to continue on, I believe, because not everybody's got the cell phone for, you know, you name the person in the city, but we through trust and collecting purposes have been able to put together a, a, a lot of cell phone numbers so that you have the ability to get somebody when you want to. And that would be the first step. And then if you had enough people verifying, yes, this was true, okay, where's this coming from? Who else do we call? You know, what, what do we need to know? You, you will come down to getting to, you know, if, as long as there is no nuclear strike, by the next day, you'll see reports on, okay, let's say something did happen. Let's say this was a hoax, but what if it wasn't? What would you do? What could you do? And that story, I almost describe it like, Water coming out of a hose. A story starts right at the edge of that hose as water's coming out. And then what happens? That water doesn't stay in a steady stream. That water starts to flow outward and it creates a big puddle. Well, you can push every little bit of that puddle and find a different angle to the story. The other way that it's described is using a prism. If you hold a prism to the light, you've got a beam of light shining on it. And then that prism, as you rotate it, changes the direction of the light. And so you've got to look at it from different angles. You've got to push different boundaries of it. You've got to find everything you can. And that's exactly what takes place. Do you place. find that task becoming more difficult? No, I find it becoming easier. How so? Because there are more people to talk to. You have more angles to look at. You have more people who are involved in more things that are front and center. I mean, let's say somebody came in and said a whole bunch of information has been stolen from whatever it is in London, Ontario, first thing I'm calling is one of you two guys. And I'm going to say, hey, this is what we have. Can you kind of stay on alert? We're going to establish that, yes, this has happened, but I'm going to want to talk to you guys about what this could mean. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is it okay if, if I call you in an hour or so, if we get this verified? That's exactly what's going to take place. You're going to look for experts. You're going to look for people who can add context to it, who can help everyone to understand all pieces and all levels of information. Derek's got more experience in the academy than I do. So I also want to ask him the same question. You know, because I'm, I'm listening to Mike explain how he can go and ask different people like us to give some sort of expertise on something. But if I have like a research problem, if it's based around a certain social problem, I almost feel as though I'm not sure that my colleagues can help because as more time passes, as we get later into the 2010s, we become more micro experts at very specific things. And the academy trains us to focus very specifically. We are not generalists like they're so good at inside of Europe. And so, yeah, that, at least that's my experience. Is this something similar for you? Absolutely. And I think like half of the, the issue that we're dealing with is we're becoming so functionally specific mm -hmm. in terms of our role. And it sounds like it's almost the opposite 
in radio where you're becoming kind of a broadcaster and filmographer and interviewer and video recorder, all these things, whereas we, on the other hand, are moving way more specific. I'm an expert of something very, very, very specific. Which is? Uh, which is radicalization and terrorism and uh, some of these issues, but very, very specific. Uh, and uh, it seems like the sort of overarching story I'm hearing is like almost the polar opposite to keep up with with some of the uh, changes over the past. 10, so what Derek years. is essentially saying is that we need to start reaching out to you more mm. <laughs> and less people like us. Are you well, okay with that? No, but I need to reach out to people like you because mm. I need those specific yeah. people. In the news, we need to have people who are able to, as long as we know what they do, and maybe that's one of those keys is making all those ties, knowing that someone is out there because we have our contact list, but that contact list is forever growing. As soon as you speak with someone and you think this person, and, and we look for certain ingredients too, you could talk to the greatest expert about something, but if they don't make any sense because A, they're speaking so far above what the general public is going to be able to comprehend, or they are someone that just is uninteresting to listen to, they drone on or whatever it happens to be, then we're not going to make use of them, but we're going to say, okay, that's on the right path. We need somebody like that. We just need somebody different than them. So we need all of those very, very specific individuals because very, very specific things will happen. And the more that that water flows and you start pushing that puddle, you are finding, you know, further and further outreaches of an issue. And at the furthest outreaches, that's where you find the most specific experts. In our field, we're seeing a lot of academics moving towards what we call public sociology or public academia, where we're trying to develop podcasts like we're doing right now and going on uh, writing editorials and getting on the radio and being on TV to try and um, move our work forward. Um, but I think there's a lot of lessons to learn from radio where uh, in terms of esoteric language, trying to get rid of that sort of pie in the sky uh, thinking. Um, and I wonder... Are, are there any pressures for radio broadcasters to become a little bit more uh, academic or complex? I think it is still, for the most part, very broad. The old rule of thumb in any journalism class, and I think it still holds this, and it sounds, it sounds almost demeaning, but it's to write for a grade four intelligence. Mm -hmm. So when you're writing a story, you make sure somebody in grade four can understand it. Mm. And that really does hold true because you want to make sure you're presenting things. And like I said, we might look at an expert and if that expert is talking so far above everybody, it isn't doing that many people justice to listen to them speak mm. because they're just not going to be enthralled with that. A they're going to be lost. Grade four. Grade four. Now, I don't know you about you, Derek, but I, I've gotten used to telling my students, write as if your reader is a reasonably educated grandparent. It's a very different kind <laughs> yeah. of conversation to be that having, is, isn't it? That is very, very different. Grade four to, what, 60, 70? <laughs> it's a big jump. But we do live in a world now where if you want to have that intelligent conversation, and I like to believe that on the air, in talk shows, we aren't striving to have conversations that we could have with a nine-year-old. Mm. We're striving to have conversations that we could have 
at a Tim Hortons. We're striving to have a conversation that we could have in an academic setting. We're just looking to have conversations and looking for viewpoints on anything. And it's amazing to see on a talk show, especially how viewpoints can be presented. And very few talk shows will come to a conclusion. But I hope that people will come away from discussion saying, I hadn't thought of that before. And that's what you want. And that it opens something up that maybe they say at the dinner table, hey, you should have heard listening to what they were talking about today and hadn't thought of this this way. Here it is. And it just broadens perspective. I'm thinking about my family and the fact that every time we meet up for dinner or Thanksgiving, uh, they come to me and say, I, li- I heard this on the radio. I heard this on television. And earlier you spoke about the responsibility of this role. And I'm curious of whether or not you hit a moment in your career where you realized, I have responsibility to my audience. I have to be giving them information that's factual, reliable, verified. It came from the training, mm-hmm. and it did. And I was lucky enough to have people who were kind of showing me the ropes that made it pretty clear, especially since I started when I was a teenager. This is not to be messed around with. You want to go and mess around, you can mess around in a studio. <laughs> Just don't be live on the air. Mm. And so I was pretty lucky that way. And I've always kind of been cognizant of, okay, and I will even ask questions now. I mean, I'm now at the stage in my career where I'm older than most of the people that I work with. I am older than my bosses, but I'm asking them questions. Hey, here's how I'm going to do this. What do you guys think? Hey, here's this. Does this sound right? And we all end up doing it because you want to get almost that vetting process that you were talking about, you've got to make sure that you're doing it right. So you've still got to be asking questions. If you think you're an expert, the moment you do, the moment you think you know how to do something, that's the moment you realize you don't have to know how to do much. But as far as that responsibility, yeah, that's, that's always there. And I, I hope people hold it dearly. Yeah. There's so many questions that come to mind that I want to ask you, Mike, and I don't know if this one's going to be directly related to anything that you just said, but like maybe even five minutes ago, I started wondering about political correctness. You know, so you feel this responsibility and this commitment to use the resources you have to verify that some piece of information or an idea or a news story you want to share is worth its weight. But when I'm in the lecture hall, I am particularly attentive to my word choice. Mm -hmm. I'm particularly attentive to this culture of people becoming more sensitive about the ideas and also the way that they're being delivered and communicated from my mouth. Is this something that you have to deal with in your profession? Yes. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about this? I'm really interested. Well, you know what? I'm so happy you brought it up because it's something you do struggle with because during the holidays, you're talking throughout the holidays and You want to say Merry Christmas, but you also want to say Happy Kwanzaa. You also want to say Happy Hanukkah. And it sounds strange to mix in absolutely every one of those things. You wind up saying to yourself for a little while, okay, I'm going to be completely politically correct. And it's almost like a pendulum, that pendulum that they always (laughs) talk about that rockets back and forth in everything. And okay, I'm, I'm going to be completely politically correct. And you'll do that for a little while. And it will either be too confusing, too time consuming. And then you'll go, well, okay, maybe I'll just ignore it entirely. And then you're way back the other way. And political correctness and sensitivity, yeah, they are real things. And you do have to be careful in the way that you are phrasing things. And 
Our culture is not getting less sensitive, and I don't think this is something that's going away. I think that sensitivity is going to stay in its heightened state. Okay, so this is something that I've been plagued with. I teach in sociology. Derek is a sociologist, and I've struggled to figure out where these sort of things come from. You've been in an interesting position in a radio station and at hockey rinks to see where these things might come from. Do you have any insider ideas about what is sort of catalyzing this sort of social sensitivity? Is this a new thing or have you seen this in the past? Well, if I'm going to give an opinion, I think it's come from the fact that we are living in a world now where we have that, that real individual presentation. And so when someone wants to say, I am this, and they list off 75 characteristics, then that's who they are. And you know what? It's on their Facebook page, or it's, if you read through some of the other social posts, that's exactly who they are. And the more that they, they see that, and the more that it is maybe confirmed or it is, you know, endorsed by other individuals, I think the more that sensitivity grows because they see when maybe it used to not be okay to say, I really like red t-shirts. Now somebody who says, I really like red t-shirts is not afraid to say that. And yet if they've got somebody saying, you know what, every t-shirt is great, but red, then they're willing to, wait a minute, you can't say that. Red t-shirts are no different than brown t-shirts or no different than purple t-shirts and blue t-shirts. You can't do that. And I really think it's that individual sense that we now have about us and just the ability to speak up. Whereas before, you might hear something that you found offensive and you would just go, oh, I'm, I'm not going to mention, I don't, I don't start anything. Now, people are more apt to say, hey, that's not how I believe. And this is what I believe. So you make sure you respect my beliefs too. And I think there are positives and negatives in all of that. You bring up a very interesting sociological concept in terms of present- presentation of the self. Uh, it's a common thing that we've talked about in sociology, and I think that's very interesting and very accurate, um, particularly when you think of uh, social media as a platform not only to present yourself, but now you can see others in a way you couldn't before. So now you can compare with others, and you're often only seeing the best in somebody's life. Nobody's posting their bad hair day on Instagram. Oh, you People... haven't been on my uh, feed today. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody is posting them at their worst moments. It's only their best moments. And you, you start to see that comparison and that comparison with that individualized presentation of the self and the platform, as you speak of, make a, a great recipe for um, a, a heightened sensitivity to any, uh, anyone who would oppose what you're saying. I don't know how we get back from where we've come, though, but I don't necessarily think we need to. If someone wants to say, I like purple T-shirts, isn't that something they should be able to say? We often fetishize the past, right? We, we, we often love to say, oh, things are going in this direction. It's brutal. I don't see any problem with heightened sensitivity. We've got a lot of years, a long history of inequalities of a variety of kinds. and. Uh, I don't really want to go in the past. I kind of want to move to the future. And if that means uh, a temporal period of heightened sensitivity to get there, maybe it's not a bad thing. Yeah, for sure. I I like that idea. I love the idea that maybe this is a temporary period. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is just the step that you need to take toward more inclusion, even though everything we would look 
you know, Ad in, in some media coverage would tell us we are being less and less inclusive. I really think, you know, the the real underbelly is becoming more inclusive. You look mm-hmm. at somebody under the age of 30, that's where inclusivity actually does live. Yes. And I want to see those people as they grow older because it's not about exclusivity. And I really hope that they one day take over the world and keep that about them. I don't know if humans, as humans, if we can do that. I mean, somebody once said that if we weren't dividing people based on race or religion, if we all looked the same and believed the same, we would all of a sudden say everybody who's over the the six foot two height is no good or is the greatest. It's in human nature. And you guys would have a lot more thought about this. It's in human nature to be divisive. I don't know. Here's something I don't get to do very often. I want to play devil's advocate for a minute. Tommy is devil's advocate. Oh, you're going <laughs> to enjoy this, aren't you? Are you ready? I'm not sure that I am. But let's see how this goes. In a liberal democracy, if we can just agree for the time being that we as a populace elect people to represent us, they are indeed representing our ideas and our voices. There isn't necessarily need for everyone to speak. Could that be perceived as an issue, especially in an age of information, the proliferation of algorithms? smothered by a big data industry that says to use those things to go and figure out what the aggregate sum of ideas are. If too many people are talking, guys, this is my simple point here, isn't it just noise? Isn't there just too much? Yeah, it is. I mean, I think our political system is so antiquated, it hardly represents what we want it to, and it's so corrupt at all levels, at any level, because humans are involved, because humans are going to look out for their best interests. So instead of having somebody representing, you have somebody representing, but they still have their own interest at stake. And it's a, it's a very difficult thing to ask a human being to do. I don't know if it can be done. And yet we've been living under this kind of governance system, you know, or many forms of it forever. Mm. And it's, it's partially an ideal of democracy, right? The ideal of democracy is a beautiful thing. And oh, there, yeah. there's so much power to just striving for this thing we call democracy. But to suggest that uh, we, any place on this earth has a true democracy, I would be hard-pressed to agree with that. Doesn't um, Marxism look great in its most pure sense? Exactly. So when we're <laughs> talking... humans get involved. When we're talking socialism, demo- it's all ideals. And yeah, they work. Uh, and there's some stability to a democratic style of system. But I agree, it's, it's founded on this idea of knowledge and it's founded on this idea of information. And when you have so much information for which this podcast itself contributes to, how do you navigate that? And when you're the ones giving the information, how do you navigate that in your own mind? When, when, when you have the responsibility to, uh, to portray this information. You try to be unbiased, but let's face it. Mm. I mean, how many times do people say, oh, that newspaper is left-leaning, oh, that TV station is right-leaning, and sometimes they do a lot to support themselves, but yeah, you try and be unbiased as best you can, but not everybody's even trying to be unbiased. Do you notice in your work that you're ever unbiased, or, and if you do notice that, how do you reel that back? I have been called a lot of names and stuff on, you know, and especially now that people can have that sense of anonymity, mm. you get called out a lot more. So if they don't believe you to be what they are, they are very quick to call you the other thing or something nasty that doesn't 
go along with what they believe. So yeah, that, that happens. I try and be unbiased, but I, I hope, and, and I know that I can't be because in the end, you know, if it's reporting the news, yes, you can be. But if you are doing a talk show or if you're having a discussion or you're at any point presenting an opinion, you can't make it up. I always say that on the air, a radio personality, because they always get asked the question because you hear them on the radio or you see them on TV or you might read their stuff in the newspaper. People who are in the public eye in that way, they're always asked or people always ask, well, what's what's that person like? What are they like? On the air, they're 99% themselves and they're 1% not themselves. And that 1% is kind of pushing the envelope of a certain part of their personality where your belief systems, your morals, all of those things have to be intact because you have to be able to feel your opinion. You have to, you can't fabricate an opinion very easily and not, you know, not stick with it, make it believable. But that 1% has to be that, that presenter. That 1% has to be, you know, if I'm in a social setting, I'm not the person talking all the time. I'm sure if we counted up the minutes on this podcast, I'm leading right now. I've said more in those minutes than, than, uh, than the two of you Which combined probably. Which is what we want in this po- podcast. So you can, you can go all day. That's me in front of a microphone. Mm, yeah. That's yeah. not me anywhere else. Fair enough. Listen, gentlemen, I don't want to shut this down too preemptively here. Can we do a part two? We can definitely do a part two. But before you go... I have to ask you, and I want you to forget about bias and unbiased and all that for just a minute. We're, we're crouching up on game time here. Bruins and Leafs, game six. Mike, are my Leafs going to win tonight? I think the Leafs are going to win. I think they're definitely going to win. So is this, is this biased, Mike, or is this unbiased? No, Mike? this is unbiased. This is me looking at the fact that the Boston Bruins got a real step on the Toronto Maple Leafs in that maybe the Leafs just weren't ready for that next level yet. Boston still has Patrice Bergeron, Zdeno Chara, who have won a Stanley Cup. They know what it's like all the way through. They know what it's like to get to the end. And that level changes awfully quickly. I don't think the Leafs were ready in Game 1 or Game 2, and they are ready now. And they played like it on Saturday when their penalty kill went six for six. And I think buoyed by the home fans, with Boston now feeling the pressure, it's almost easier to get a 2 nothing lead and lose it than it is to be down 2 nothing and come back. And that's what Toronto has done. Toronto's got everything going for them right now. So I'm looking forward to Game 7 already. I now, w- I don't want to jinx things, but I am. <laughs> I wonder if also... It, uh, to play on that a little bit, I wonder if also it has to do with the fact that Boston was playing for something towards the end of the season. The Leafs weren't playing for anything no. for the past three great months. Point. Well, my my heart rate's through the roof already. I don't know about you guys, but listen, Mike, thank you so much for your time. This was thoroughly, thoroughly interesting. I've known you for so many years. You got me into radio. <laughs> I owe you tremendously, and I you feel like I'm nothing. just starting to scratch the surface. So if we can get you back for episode two, that'd be fantastic. Oh, definitely. Mark it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of What's That Noise? If you enjoyed the show, please follow us on Twitter at WTNCast, at Derek Krim, or at Thomas N. Cook. And please subscribe to our channel on iTunes or Google Play Music. Until next time, keep listening for the noise. <laughs>